everybody, and welcome to the Antifada. We have uh, Sean here and also Jamie. Hello. And we have our excellent third time returning guest, or is it fourth time returning guest, Alex Gendler. What's up, Alex? Yo. We brought Alex on to uh, to talk about some grave shit that's going down uh, today. What's the date today? Today is the 28th of February. On Thursday of last week, of course, the uh, invasion of Ukraine uh, by Russia began. We're now four or five days into that war. Uh, Alex Gendler knows a lot about Ukraine, Ukraine politics, greater Russian politics, uh, because uh, his family's from there. And uh, he actually, um, I hear uh, that the town, your hometown is actually under I mean, he, attack, right? He himself is from there. It's not just his yeah, family. Like, yeah, I was say, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was born in Kharkiv uh, in Soviet Ukraine. Uh, went to Soviet school until second grade. I was a proud uh, young Octoberist. And uh, yeah, Kharkiv is the second largest city in Ukraine. And uh, this morning, the what, the fifth day of fighting uh, the residential apartment blocks in several neighborhoods, including the one where I grew up, uh, are just being artillery shelled, uh, just total civilian targets. Uh, so yeah, that's what's going on. I mean, but I... Alex, some tankies in my mentions said that Russia is only targeting uh, official buildings and not civilians. Right. I mean, it's also coming to, uh, you know, denazify a country that elected a Jewish president. Yeah. We're going to yeah. we, we, we've got to get into this. Uh, like I said, a grave episode. This is not going to be like a fun, jokey around episode. This is some very, very serious stuff as. The world probably stands closer to the precipice of uh, nuclear warfare than it has in decades at this point in time, probably since 1991, when uh, the Soviet Union dissolved itself. And we all here uh, in the West, um, uh, in the United States, in Europe, wherever we are, are trying to look at this situation. First off, try to understand historically how it came about. Uh, second off, uh, try to understand what it was that you know brought us to this particular conjuncture. But then third off, too, the huge question is what should our orientation towards this be? Um, as Alex mentioned, with the tanky tank, uh, tanky takes, we have a lot of people out there who are uh, not merely saying that Russia's doing the right thing, that Putin's uh, right to invade, to demilitarize and denazify, quote unquote, Ukraine. But also that uh, this is a striking blow for anti-imperialism worldwide. And that's something that uh, I've tried to not get into online because online is a real fucking cesspool right now. But I think it's something that we're, we're obligated to get into right now. And then I'll say, too, before we open it up, that <clears throat> the other big thing that I've seen over the last few days, too, is a, is a real like bloodthirst and war drive on the part of the liberal uh, commentariat in the United States uh, and many politicians as well, too, who I guess they haven't had a good war in such a long time that all of a sudden they feel like they need to escalate things um, all the way to the point of a shooting war with Russia. And uh, even sleepy Joe Biden, even Brandon knows that's a bad idea. But you have people out there who are basically calling for the end of humanity. So somewhere in between all this, we stand. The three of us stand. Oh, and I boy. guess everybody of good conscience stands who wants to understand this and wants to, under, wants to think about what a communist orientation towards this might be. Uh, if there is one. If there is right. one. Yeah, that's, that's the key question, right? 
I mean, I think it's broken a lot of people's brains that there isn't a clear answer on that that jumps out at you. Although maybe, maybe there is, and I'm going to learn it now. But as far as I can tell so far from my research, it's uh, TBD to say the least. No, I mean, yeah, there, it's like a lot of people just come at this from the wrong way because, and we know why it's because, you know, the whole like online left culture and Twitter takes there, the immediate question is what take should I have on this? And that's where everyone starts from. And then they, they just get the talking points from whatever outlet, you know, they're used to reading and that's it. And then they go with that. They run with that. And then they, it's been amazing to me how many people just issue these takes so like confidently and authoritatively about a place like it's clear, like they know nothing about, they don't, they've never talked to anyone actually from there or even from the region. Uh, and, you know, then they just form like, you know, form a whole little foundation of takes around that. And I think the problem is like before coming at, the question of you know what should the communist line be like at least like us try to get some basic idea of like what the situation on the ground is what the history is and what it's really like for people there right yeah and um, all its complexity yeah i mean and obviously you know not expecting not saying you have to become an expert on eastern european history to like protest the war but like you should at least be curious enough to actually like solicit the opinions or at least like go go read them they're there um I mean, I'll throw out some sites at the end, but, and I mean, I'll talk about why, like there are leftists in these countries, within these countries who are, who have been publishing, you know, their analysis and their experience and the amount of the Western left that just completely pretends like those don't exist is just like baffling to me. Um, so yeah, I don't know, like where, where do we want to start is, you know, you can start with all the way, like you know yeah. history like oh we can go all the way back to you know what like the, the 16th century so i mean but look long, long story short there was this holiday polity like federation of principalities called the kievan Rus. they were kind of cool they were like pagan slavs kind of ruled by vikings um sounds then, based know, they, they converted to orthodox to well it wasn't the schism hadn't happened yet they converted to Christianity through Byzantium. Um, so that happened. And then, you know, and then they were actually kind of cool. They even had some, like some of the principalities like Novgorod had some like proto-democratic institutions, like they had elections for the prince or whatever. But, you know, that all ended with the Mongols and Mongols swept through, sacked Kiev. And this is really where the history of like Russia and Ukraine begins, because if I had to like sum it up in a nutshell, Ukraine is, Ukraine and Belarus really uh, are the parts of the Kievan Rus that didn't end up fully under Mongol control. And Russia is. Um, and, you know, people will like try to spin that into some like nationalist shit, like, oh, like that's why Russia is so autocratic because they inherited oriental despotism. Right, that um, that all hundred year Kremlin, Kremlinology stuff, that uh, that Richard Pipe shit, where we can understand yeah. the Cold War through like the oriental despotism mm -hmm. of the Russian bloodline or whatever the fuck. Sounds yeah. a little um, eugenicist to me. It's right. racial. It's that's certainly right. racial. But I mean, the, the it's all, but in the other end, and on the other hand, it's basically just the flip side of what of the Eurasianism that Dugan claims. Like, ah, yeah. They both kind of agree on the same things. They're like, yes, like there is this like continuity and kinship between uh, Russia and the you know great steppe empires, and only one side said that says that's bad, and the other one says it's good. 
we're, um, we're going to have to, I think, uh, later on in this episode, talk about who Alexander Dugan is, because I, for some reason, it seems to me, this is something that we need to confront. Um, it seems to me that like swaths of the English speaking left have somehow seen fit to substitute civilizational struggle for class struggle uh, for like a, a vulgar sort of uh, anti-Atlanticist pro uh, what is it, Euro, Eurasian sort of analysis of the world. And that's something we should understand because it's something that we should oppose. But I'm sorry I interrupted you. Go yeah, ahead. no, no. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's where you get the beginning of the sort of like, you know, cultural divide, right? And then for the next, for about the next like 300 years, uh, the Western parts of the Cuban Rus end up under like Catholic, uh, Polish and Lithuanian dominion uh, that influences their language, their like culture, the way they understand like rule. Uh, some of them end up as uh, Cossacks, these kind of like militant, like nomad farmers who form like a buffer zone between um, Poland, Lithuania and the like the Ottoman Empire. Um, meanwhile, uh, the eastern parts are like vassals to the Mongol state. Uh, one of them, one of the cities, uh, Muscovy, ends up gradually thriving under the Mongols, becoming more and more powerful until they're actually able to throw them off uh, around the 16th century. And when they do that, they find themselves in an interesting position because by then, um, or around that time, or soon after that, Byzantium has fallen. Uh, so Greece and all the Balkans are under Ottoman control. Uh, you know, the Western parts of the Kievan Rus are under Catholic uh, Polish-Lithuanian control. So they end up being the only Orthodox power that's not controlled by, that's not under foreign rule, which basically allows them to claim that they are the continuation of Rome. Uh, the third the, Rome. Yeah, the third Rome. And that it's their historical mission to uh, regather the Russian lands. Uh, so they set about trying to reconquer the Western parts of the former Kievan Rus from uh, under Poland and Lithuania. And uh, initially, actually, the people there who have stayed, who despite, you know, the there's been, they've spent a few centuries apart, they've stayed Eastern Orthodox. So they're like, you know, kind of oppressed by their Catholic nobility. Uh, and they actually welcome that help. But when push comes to shove, when they actually see what absorption into um, the Tsardom of Muscovy means that they have a, a totally different like model of rule, uh, they, you know, they stridently insist on maintaining independence. Um, that doesn't happen. And so you are, I mean, and, you know, this is the reason I'm laying out this history is like, as a communist, like, I don't care about, you know, cultural, historical identity and think that that should define borders. But this is just all to the point that these like conflict, like people will say like, oh, Ukraine was a fake country that was created in 1991. Like, no, these conflicts over like sort of distinct cultural formations have been there since- It's like, a millennia year, yeah. Since the 16th century at least, which is older yeah. than a lot of modern nations. So, right. yeah. So I mean, you know, where do we go from there, right? Uh, you kept you 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 kept having this like a resistance. Uh, you know, Ukraine kept being part kind of carved, or the territory that is now Ukraine kept being carved up between um, between like Poland, Lithuania, then Austria-Hungary, and the Russian Empire. And you know, especially when you get the age of like Romantic nationalism in the 19th century, where uh, there is just this like massive uh, awakening across Europe. Um, like that, that, that obviously affects, uh, you know, they were at that time and they were called Ruthenians uh, or Rusins in various ways. But yeah, they, they kind of all these people who are like loosely, you know, an Eastern Orthodox religion following um, 
speaking an East Slavic language that's like not quite the same as Russian and not quite Polish, uh, they sort of coalesce and for and conceive of themselves as also a national identity. Um, and then, you know, after World War One, uh, the the ones who are there's a part of them who are under Austria-Hungary, and there's a part of them who are under Russia. And after World War One, when both those empires fall, is the first time that um, they're able to the Ukrainians across that former imperial border actually start forming polities. And in like during the Russian Civil War, um, and you know the period following the revolution, it's I mean it's total chaos. It's uh, pretty pretty brutal uh, for um, you know especially for people in that region. At one point, there's like five rival governments like claiming jurisdiction over Ukraine. There's uh, you know dear to my heart is the uh, Nestor Makhno's uh, you know uh, free territory, which tries to form like an anarchist kind of commune. Um, around Eastern Ukraine, not exactly the area I'm from, more actually including the Donbass. Um, mm. And then, you know, there's a, there's a sort of social democratic uh, people's republic uh, in the West, mostly around like the territory that was Austria-Hungary. Uh, there's a more like sort of um, just like centrist to authoritarian like Hetmanet. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of, and you know, they variously ally with Germany or with uh, with the allies. Uh, it's, it's a total mess, but but you this know, is the, the uh, this is the Wilsonian thirteen points moment. This is when right. like uh, national self determination was supposed to be kind of the point of ending the first world war on the terms that it was ended on, and so this sort of romantic nationalism you mentioned that builds up through the nineteenth century. It was people like the Ruthenians that all of a sudden are starting to grasp at, as these empires fall, grasp at some sort of modern sense of like national creation, and I think the next place you're going is that 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 becomes stymied right in this area uh, some sort of like um some sort of liberal or like secular sort of nationalist self-determination that other nations like even poland gets right, right. next door is not afforded to the ukrainians yeah but it is afforded in a way because what comes out of that whole chaos is the bolshevik victory right mm. and <laughs> and um you know in a explanation that'll really scramble these twitter people's brains uh, Lenin is committed to dismantling uh, what he calls great Russian chauvinism, uh, which had been the policy of the Russian Empire, right? Like Ukrainian language was suppressed. Uh, every Russian was like forcibly, you know, it was like the only language allowed. Uh, Russification was his official policy. And Lenin and the Bolsheviks want to reverse all that. So they institute this policy called colonization, uh, which is like root, uh, rootification, let's say. Uh, but it's, it's the Bolshevik national policy. It runs all the way basically up to Stalin's time. And this is what, you know, the idea that every national minority, of course, then there was a problem with how you define the national minorities, but every national minority deserves self-determination within uh, the Soviet Union, either within their own uh, republic, like which have nominal sovereignty, or uh, within, you know, like autonomous uh, oblasts and regions within, uh, within Russia. Um, and Ukraine, uh, this is, you know, in what Vladimir Putin will never forgive Vladimir Lenin for uh, Ukraine gets formed from that former territory of the of Austria-Hungary that had a majority, you know, Eastern Orthodox Ruthenian speaking population and uh, the Western parts of the Russian Empire that were kind of like considered the frontier. Um, and yeah, that's how Ukraine gets its modern borders uh, later with minus like the very Western parts that later get added after World War II. But um, yeah. So, and you know, for 
uh, the irony about um, you know, like the irony about them tearing down all the Lenin statues after the Maidan revolution in 2014 was that under Lenin, you saw more uh, Ukrainian language schools open throughout Ukraine than like at any other time in Ukrainian history up until that point. Um, because of the nationality policies. Exactly. The and the nationality policy actually caused a lot of resentment from, uh, you know, like ethnic Russians who, it, it was basically affirmative action. Right. There's actually a good book about this. Uh, it's called uh, The Affirmative Action Empire by, uh, let's see who it's, uh, Terry tell, Yeah. Okay. Don't tell Tucker Carlson that. Right. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. And then, you know, that starts getting kind of reversed under Stalin, who, uh, you know, is another important uh, part in Ukrainian history because there's, there's a little thing that happens under Stalin. Um, that's now called the Holodomor, which uh, you know I'm told by Twitter is uh, is Nazi propaganda and a total lie. So um, yeah, uh, tell but, us about that. I, I'm interested in your take on it. So so was the so was it a forced famine? Was it a uh, like a, a national like a suppression of the Ukrainian people through a forced famine, or was it um, part of the collectivization process of the of uh, peasant agriculture or or was it uh, an attack on the peasantry at large many of whom lived in ukraine right uh it was all of the above um now the the part about like oh was, was it deliberate genocide like you know genocide is a very specific term under like international law and kind of hard to really like prove without a smoking gun where, and, you know, Stalin did issue like specific orders targeting other minorities. They never found like that kind of smoking gun for Ukraine. Um, but, you know, my read is that it was essentially kind of like the Bengal famine. It was a deliberate uh, state policy that, you know, it wasn't designed to kill people, but it, it obviously would kill people and they didn't care. Uh, it was a policy of exporting grain, of requisitioning grain and exporting it uh, in order to industrialize, right. to bring in uh, foreign, to bring in foreign capital, and uh, doing that while you know that the people in the areas you're requisitioning grain from are starving. Um, so you know this is a this isn't unique to communism or capitalism. This is a or it, this isn't quote unquote communism or capitalism. This is like a developmental. It's unique to developmental processes that happen either through this stretch over the course of like a hundred years in like early capitalism or. I think what's so brutal about the Russian industrialization process is, is that this long span of like developmentalism happens over the course of 15 years. And right. so a lot of that violence and a lot of that dislocation and dispossession is then sort of concentrated in yeah. history, which makes and this, it so. And, right. And this isn't just something that uh, that affected uh, Western Ukraine, you know, like my um, like my grandfather grew up in central Ukraine. Um, and uh, yeah, one of the uh, if you don't, anytime we hung out, I like never leave food on the plate. Um, I was gonna say, <laughs> I know uh, that you would cringe if I said trauma is passed down genetically, but uh, it, like you don't need genes, like you got the, the living memory of this thing. Oh, yeah, it, it's like, not genetically, it was, it was anytime I left, like even like a bone unpicked, my grandfather would start telling me about how he had to, his parents had to hide him in a secret compartment under the floorboards. He was like six at the time, uh, and they had to hide him because neighbors were roaming around looking for children to eat. Jeez, um, yeah, unimaginable shit. Yikes, um, and yeah, no, Alex cleans his plate, folks. I he's not lying about that. <laughs> really did enjoy the banana bread you made, by the way, from some bananas that were about to go in the garbage. Yes, thank you. So, 
so this mass famine then uh, becomes later on, certainly a kind of another touchstone of Ukrainian nationalism, because in the 1930s, uh, after this happens and the collectivization happens, of course, World War II happens, the Nazi drive in order to, you know, subjugate the East and gain Lebensraum happens and Ukraine catches some of the worst of this. But also it gives Ukrainian nationalism, a different type of nationalism, let's say, a time to shine with uh, Stefan Bandera and the OUN and, and all those groups. Yep. Yeah. And that's like, you know, that's a, that's a little point that all the quote unquote anti-imperialist articles love to latch onto. But I mean, the thing is, uh, if you, if you really look at the overall thing, um, the Nazis, uh, remember the Nazis positioned themselves as uh, an anti-imperialist power. Uh, they, and the narrative was that they were like, Germany was a, an oppressed country that had been, you know, fragmented and held down by the hegemonic imperial powers of, uh, you know, the, of the British empire, the French empire. And um, it's both uh, to justify its own expansion and it also appealed, it appealed to the colonies uh, of the British and the French, um, and also territories of the Russian Empire. Because I mean, that's like classic warfare. You try to divide and conquer. Um, and you know, this is not you know, Finland uh, literally cooperated with the Axis army in their invasion of Russia, um, though notably like managed to keep all their Jews alive. Um, Ireland, there was some contact between the IRA uh, and the Nazis, though it didn't go anywhere. Um, the Nazis definitely tried to whip India up into an anti-colonial revolt against uh, the British Empire. So, you know, looking at it in that context, it's like, yeah, Ukrainians who were fighting against, um, who were trying to resist Soviet collectivization, um, they saw them as a, like, they saw the Nazis as a potential ally. Uh, and they also, they committed massacres not only against Jews, but against Poles, because there was still, uh, there was still a part of, um, uh, the region known as Galicia that was under that had been under Polish control, um, which after World War II ended up uh, ended up being the westernmost part of Ukraine in the Soviet Union. Um, yeah, so I mean that's all there. It's not uh, you know something to deny, but uh, you know to put in context, millions millions more Ukrainians fought with the partisans, fought with the Red Army. Right. Um, the kind of like personal. I remember when um, you know my again my so my grandfather. He didn't fight. He was like 14 when the war broke out. His older brother did. He went off to the front. He fought on the Eastern Front. Um, my grandfather was like one of four siblings and, you know, in like a mixed like Jewish and Ukrainian village. And he remembers like when the war was starting to break out, um, a lot of the local Ukrainians weren't worried. And the reason that they weren't worried is because the when they heard the Germans are coming, they remembered the Germans from World War One which by all accounts were like, you know, the German officers were very civilized. They treated the local population well. Some of the soldiers like married the local women. So they, there wasn't, they really, a lot of people didn't really know what was coming. Uh, the reason that my family left was because my grandfather's older sis, old, oldest sister, who I think was like in her late twenties and then never got married. Cause I think she was just like married to the communist party. Like she had become a fervent. She was oh yeah. Bride of Marx. Yeah. <laughs> and she was the one who was keeping up with all the stuff. And she was the one that was like, no, we need to get the fuck out. Um, so, you know, that's kind of why I'm here today. So ex yeah. Except for her, your family would have stayed and yeah. Shit. Yeah, exactly. Gotten this. Oh. 
we should note that our guest is also Jewish. Oh, yeah. I know right. you don't believe in standpoint epistemology, but I feel like it might be relevant to some of what yeah, we're just, talking yeah. about. Yeah, just a bit. I mean, also the fact that I, I don't speak a word of Ukrainian. My first and my first language is Russian. Um, so, yes. you know, I can, and I mean, we'll get into this the language politics shit later. Like, you know, Russian and Ukrainian are about uh about the same as like spanish and portuguese like you can understand like maybe 80 percent of it if you're kind of familiar so yeah um anyway yeah but yeah moving on we're uh, so this is one thing i'll say though is that this seems like ancient history especially for people who are you know a bit younger but you know you're talking about uh you know your grandparents people who you knew very well this this was not this is not the ancient past this is like something that's still in living memory to people alive and it's certainly these stories have been passed down to people who of course are very much still here so we're now in the realm where you know people's ideology people's understandings of the world are being forged in this sort of crucible of violence in the second world war and then of course the you know what happens after so i'm sorry go on no yeah um that's that's totally right um so, I mean, you know, what, where to go from there? You, you know, the Soviets win World War II, uh, Ukrainian nationalism is suppressed. Like Bandera actually it, it kind of, you know, sort of uh, poetic justice, I guess. Uh, you know, the Nazis never had any intention of uh, giving Ukraine independence. They thought the Slavs were untermenschen. And uh, Bandera actually ends up like, you know, dying like uh, as a Nazi prisoner. Um, so just deserts. You know, yeah, that didn't work out so well. Um, right. So, I mean, you know, and then in within the Soviet Union, I mean, a lot of these kind of nationalist narratives, like, you know, we, we suffered under Soviet oppression um, and, you know, the Holodomor is definitely a touch point of that, but they kind of extend that to the whole Soviet period. But really, I mean, under the Soviets, Ukraine was no more oppressed than Russia itself. Uh, it was the second, like, kind of uh, largest and most important republic. Um, it was actually kind of given its own seat at the UN, but that was just deployed by uh, Stalin to get for the Soviets to get an extra seat, but still, you know, notable. Um, and then there was that point in the 50s when Khrushchev transferred uh, Crimea, uh, the Crimean Peninsula from Russia to, uh, to Ukraine with its mostly like Russian speaking population. And so, yeah, I mean, this all forms a backdrop to, you know, 1984, uh, along comes uh, Alex into this world. So yeah, like a little bit of background. Like I was born, I was born in uh, Kharkiv, which is Ukraine's second largest city. It's all the way in the northeast. Uh, it's the one that's being, you know, currently uh, bombed by Russians. Um, it's uh, pretty it, during Soviet times and and after it was completely Russian speaking, um, but it also had this kind of like Ukrainian cultural uh, importance, and it was never uh, the car the sort of town character if i were to describe it like it wasn't uh this like the donbass the southeast region that became separatist was like you know sort of like a mix of like west virginia and detroit it was like a deindustrialized kind of mining place um harkov was like uh mostly white industry and it had one of the, it had the main uh, international university so uh, actually a lot of uh, international students from like africa india uh, middle east through there, uh, which is still there. Uh, and that's actually a big thing now because a lot of those students are trying to leave and encountering a lot of um, racism at the Polish and Romanian borders. Yeah, I saw that online. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I mean, you know, when we came after we, the Soviet Union filed 91, um, I had no connection to like Ukrainian culture or identity. 
we had a, I think we had about like a couple hours a week of uh, Ukraine of mandatory like Ukrainian language classes because technically that was like the the very remaining like hangover of the of Lenin's nationality policy hmm. that they tried to promote the local uh, culture, but it was like just the class that everyone blew off. Um, yeah, so I mean, where do we go from there? Like uh, Ukraine just ends up being this kind of like basket case post-Soviet state uh, that is still like firm, is still like very largely bound up with Russia. And, you know, um, in, the, in the early years, you know, the Soviet Union wasn't supposed to fall. It was just supposed to like become a looser federation. And they tried to try, try this succession of like different arrangements that were supposed to be the Commonwealth of Independent States. Um, none of that stuff really like worked out, but, you know, Ukraine does end up being this yeah, this kind of basket case that's both like trying to define uh, an identity that it was really that it really has to like dig up from, um, you know, from before Soviet history, uh, while also being like, you know, large, Russia's like Russia's its largest trading partner, it transits all the gas from Russia to Western Europe. Um, so it just, yeah, it ends up in this kind of weird position. And um, like, where should where should we go from there? Well, I mean, yeah. So, so the so as I understand it, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but the Ukrainian economy is one of the few of the former Soviet Union that actually hasn't returned to a GDP uh, of before 1990, which is to say that it's done worse than even Belarus and it's done worse than Russia, uh, but very quickly due to a, a mixture of the sort of domestic internal policy politics that you're kind of alluding to with the, you know, with ethnicity and language on the one hand, but also a real push and pull of uh, two great capitalist blocks trying to pull at this already pretty well divided uh, country. Uh, Ukraine becomes this sort of ping pong for the for the for, from about 2000 or so onwards, uh, mm -hmm. where its own domestic and internal politics and economy uh, becomes a real touch point for both uh, the Russians, especially under Putin, who's trying to revive great Russian uh, nationalism, and of course also NATO and the West, who continue to uh, the, keep the NATO alliance together for some right. fucking reason. Like, yeah, NATO obviously comes up a lot, and it obviously has become important in the last few years. But like, as a sort of driving cause, all this of all this, I think it's overstated because uh, really it was it was the EU, um, which and you know the EU and NATO are not the same thing, even though a lot of people use them interchangeably. Um, and yeah, I mean, since uh, you know you had the Orange Revolution two thousand four, where like a sort of largely agreed to be fraudulently elected uh, pro-Russian candidate. Uh, Yanukovych, whose like sort of you know core uh, constituency was like you know like oligarchs and like dudes in tracksuits. Um, <laughs> I mean, He's yeah, allowed to say that, folks. <laughs> right, but uh, you know he was kind of uh, overthrown by this popular protest uh, called the Orange Revolution that put like the pro-European government in charge, um, and you know that was kind of the beginning of this narrative where uh, let me let me try to succinctly what the uh, CAA-backed color revolutions put fascist juntas in power and commit genocide against the Russian population, right? That's what that's what the left um, believes, right? Or that what we should believe. And um, if you're on the right too, George Soros, of course, is in there as well. Yeah. I mean, we should say not all, not all, not all MLs. Uh, this is not a take I've heard from any of the people that I know personally uh, is, I guess, 
uh, lucky to be surrounded by reasonable people, but I do know a lot of like at least ML adjacent folks who have not had any of these uh, galaxy brained takes. Uh, and I'm wondering if it's more of an online thing, but anyway, let's. I hope, I hope, but I mean, you know, the boundaries between online and uh, real life are pretty blurred. I mean, Fair. I mean, those people do exist like, you know, somewhere. Right. I've gone to events uh, where I've met people like this uh, IRL, so they're there. And yeah, and I mean, I guess like, uh, you know, I was going to talk about this later, but like, yeah, the problem isn't that like, oh, we need to like defeat the tanky menace because they're going to, you know, like actually cause foreign policy to support Russian imperialism or something, right? Like, no, these people have no effect on like right. anything, right? What they do affect is like the internal discourse within the left. and the our ability to kind of like a like have just like credibility and b um like and i think i want to talk about this like a lot more later but um like solidarity with people in other countries who with and with potential and actual leftists in other countries and when you're you know when you see like when you see a mass uprising um of like people wanting like you know basic democratic rights and you call all those people cia stooges like, how are you supposed to build international solidarity from there? There's, I, I, I've been, th this has been on my radar uh, for a while, but especially since uh, the uprising uh, near insurrection in Kazakhstan just last month, right, which was, of course, put down uh, by Russia, by Putin, as part of the security agreement with, uh, you know, the billionaires over there in uh, Kazakhstan with all their oil money and shit like that. You know, I'm, you're sitting there online and you're seeing people argue that this very straightforward case where uh, there's a popular insurrection, as we've seen all over the world, we've seen with the Arab Spring, we've seen in the Balkans, we've seen in Tunisia, we've seen in like all over the place where let's be spicy uh, and throw Hong Kong in there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you've seen the government take away subsidies. In this case, it was fuel away from people. It affects their material lives. And all of a sudden they rise up and a series of different tensions that existed in society for so long in class society all of a sudden explode. And you see people rise up, burn government buildings, take them over to, you know, collect guns, start shooting up government officials. And then some motherfucking kid with a dumbass like uh, fucking anime avi online and a bunch of flags in his bio is telling you that this entire thing is a George Soros or CIA plot. It's like, motherfucker, when did you substitute class analysis, political economy for geopolitics? When did that happen and why? And how the fuck can you even imagine that a better world could be created if everything is always stage managed from the very fucking beginning exactly. that there's always just like cores of powerful people everywhere pulling the strings you're just a fucking conspiracy theorist well it's it's giving up it's because it is powerless the left has given up like i mean this or at least these people on the left have like given up on the very idea of revolution right like what is a revolution revolution is a bunch of fucking people rising up against their government if you can't like and it, if you can't support that basic idea because behind every revolution or at least selectively behind the ones that happen in countries that the u.s doesn't that it, the u.s supposedly doesn't like or claims not to like even though uh, kazakhstan was part of the coalition of the willing and had torture sites for the u.s government but somehow the cia is coming in and doing a color revolution there i'm sorry yeah, i mean okay. so did syria by i mean the way. I, right. I saw i saw a take from uh this fucking Twitter thread that I didn't want to spend any time on, but now I'm going to because it made me mad. Um, 
one of many things they were pissed about was like the very idea that you could could arm civilians and have that be uh, any kind of a good idea to resist uh, authoritarianism or what have you. And I'm like, um, maybe you should take that hammered and sickle out of your uh, bio because, I mean, last I checked, that's what that, that's the whole idea of communist revolution, right? The people rise up, take up arms and overthrow their fucking oppressors. No, these right. people in 1848 would have been telling the proletariat to put down their arms. Yeah, right. the angles. They would have been telling angles to put that. Well, they would have called. They would have called uh, Lenin a German agent. Right? No, one hundred percent. Yes, yes. Um, Wild. Yeah, and they're the MLs. They're the. They're the. Right. Uh, you know, they're the ones with the right theory and the right take on the world. And yeah, we're all just uh, fascist stooges or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, no, if if you if you think those things, you should probably keep Lenin's name out of your mouth. I'm going to say <laughs> I'm not a Leninist myself, but the man had some good ideas. Yeah. And I mean, the, the irony in all this is that like Putin literally went up straight up blatantly, like literally said, uh, you know, he. I blame it's it's the Soviet Union's fault for creating Ukraine. Uh, this was like this was Lenin's fault in his like you know radical experiments in uh, you know democracy. And I'm gonna undo all that, and I'm gonna return Russia to its uh, pre-Soviet greatness. And he literally goes up and says that, and the you know the Marxist Leninists are oh my god based um, <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't that's 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 a real wild take. Well, but let's yeah. Let's get into a little more recent history before we go yeah, off me, on bad takes. Let me talk that, about the Maidan a bit. Yeah, that's, yeah, like, that's super important. important. We had mentioned that in the in the last episode, and apparently there was some people who weren't too familiar with uh, the details of it. So we'll we'll fix that right now. Yeah, I mean, so we talked about the Orange Revolution, which like overthrew like a fraudulent election, and that's the first time that that was like kind of the trial run where Russia, which wasn't like as strongly anti-West yet, but it started trialing some of these talking points that this was a, you know, CIA-backed um, color revolution, which is kind of like a term that carries this implication that, oh, it's not a real revolution, it's a color revolution, right? It's like astroturf, it's planned. Um, and this was like just trotted out in full force from the very beginning of the Maidan uh, when, and you know, why did it break out? Let's uh, recap briefly. It was uh, the EU was offering like an association agreement, which was kind of like the first step to maybe eventually joining the EU, even though I think they never actually planned to do it. Um, NATO was nowhere in the picture, like majority, uh, like minority of Ukrainians at that point supported joining NATO. Um, and uh, Russia was trying to keep Ukraine in its orbit with like it's through its own like a uh, Eurasian economic agreement. Um, and there was this like growing um, sort of liberal middle class of like, you know, students and professionals you know, for them, the choice was simple. You look, you look West, you see Western Europe, you look East, you see Russia, and you're like, where do I want to live? That's really like all it was. Now, you know, as communists with our analysis, we can kind of understand that like the neoliberal model that the EU offered uh, Eastern Europe was ended up, would probably end up being pretty unlikely to improve living standards in the long run. You know, like uh, Hungary and Romania and Bulgaria haven't actually gone that great. Um, even if like on paper, some of the metrics have risen, what you get is, you know, a brain drain and all your young educated population leaving to like London and Berlin. And then all you're left with is like 
pensioners and angry young dudes who like uh, unskilled workers who then end up voting for right-wing populist parties. So but, uh, you get a new class of, uh, of oligarchs then too, who can be yeah. integrated into the kind of global capitalist power structure. Exactly, right. and then, but, but, you know, from the standpoint of, and so we know all this, right. But from the standpoint of like, what's driving normal people, like, yeah, no, if you're like a normal fucking person in Ukraine, like you want to be part of Europe instead of part of this like regime that like routinely kills journalists and murders like political opponents like that that's not uh you know some kind of like fascist no no regime. dude that sounds fascist as fuck well. <laughs> right right yeah exactly um so you know it was these people that came out uh and what was largely like you know protesting for this eu agreement largely peaceful for the first like couple of months in fact everyone thought it was getting cold everyone thought they were going to disperse and then like you know but Russia just really doesn't like protests so they were pressuring the Ukrainian government to like pass anti-protest laws and that's really what sparked like the whole shit uh in January when the Ukrainian government rolled out this like insane like this is like stuff that was now normal in Russia but that in Ukraine and not because I think like Ukraine was naturally more democratic or but just like the way that it had developed uh Russia ended up with a single group of oligarchs coalescing around Putin and creating like a super autocratic centralized state. Ukraine just had like multiple power bases of competing oligarch factions, which like, you know, made it just as shitty economically, um, not really like great for development. But one thing you do get in that kind of environment is you don't get a monopoly on media. So right, at right, least right. with all the different like media and shit, you have like relatively free speech, you have relatively free media. And, th and there was already by the time, you know, that comes, there was already like uh, for the capitalist class of Russia, already like an older sort of expansionist sort of ideology that could be latched onto, of course, which is greater Russia, you right. know, like going back to the third Rome, going back hundreds of years. And I'm not saying that it was a plot by them, but obviously like ruling class ideas are the ideas of society. And as you said, this concentration of capitalist power in Russia leads to an autocratic state, the, unlike obviously what we see in Ukraine or in most other capitalist countries. Right, um, exactly. So, you know, then once those laws pass, that's when like the clashes with police start, that's when it gets brutal. And then of course people get pissed off and more people come out. And now it's not just uh, students and like young professionals. It's, uh, it's sometimes it's their parents, it's army veterans, but also, you know, when you've got violence in the streets, you know, like rats drawn to blood, uh, you get the far right and you get the nationalists who are just like looking for a good brawl. And um, yeah, like those people, like the far right nationalists who, you know, until this point, um, they've always, they've always been a presence since independence, right? Uh, in every like post-Soviet country, you get the people, you got the people who like embraced their uh, pre-Soviet nationalism like a little too much to the point where like yeah they they just end up being like Nazis or something adjacent to that um, and yeah so in Ukraine you had seen these kind of debates about oh like uh, should we consider Stepan Bandera who we talked about before a national hero because he fought for Ukrainian independence uh, sort of trying to rehabilitate those like symbols. Um, and those people are there. They've always, they had uh, until now been kind of like a perennial fringe, you know, just like all European countries have their like uh, yeah. sort of perennial far right parties that get, you know, like three, 4% in parliament. Um, but at this point, they did in the Maidan, they did end up kind of taking a lead in the violence because uh, they're good at that. 
Yeah, there were uh, a lot of them were football ultras, right? And yeah. and my understanding from some of the sources you sent us is that to the like the the left forces that came out to that square, who I suppose were socialists or communists or anarchists, anarchists. were actually anarchists mostly were knifed out of the square by yeah. the far right. So when people say Jeez. like, oh well, there there was no like you know left uh, presence here in Maidan, well, it's because you know they got knifed out of it i mean yeah. this is why we need antifa super soldiers no right exactly i mean yeah like the most of the left that does exist in the eastern european space is anarchist uh, why because like the the communist parties are basically extensions of russian foreign policy right uh, they're just like soviet boomer parties basically <laughs> um, and and you know like for okay boomer. Parties, they all they all support like socially conservative like legislation like they they support like anti-lgbt shit um but if you're so but if you if you live in like uh in your parents basement somewhere in fucking ohio or new york or whatever you can like you can talk about the new synthesis of like left and right and how the communist party of russia is based because they also mm -hmm. hate the gays and how there's like a new left right sort of duganist eurasianist synthesis happening that's gonna blah 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 i mean is there oh. anything communist about them uh, Stal I mean, stalinist they, yeah like they support some soviet social programs is that communism because because putin is you know busily unraveling any remaining gains made by regular working people as part of this right. you know, i mean the communist party order, of Russia so does, like, does support more like you know state uh state in uh sort of state welfare measures let's say i'll give them that um but you know yeah, yeah. so they're nos balls literally yeah yeah um <laughs> that's that that's the party that the nos balls came out of like the, when you're talking for, about for this... once i'm not using that term in a completely inappropriate <laughs> way like like not like people have called gendler a strasserite online i'm sure oh, but uh, for, but no like you talk about this far-right presence and i think it's really important because this narrative has become so powerful of like uh the ukrainians being uniquely neo-nazi uh there's a guy named uh eo gherkin who we met in some of the sources you talked about, or uh, I think he also goes by uh, Strelkov. Strelkov, well. yeah, shooter. Is the, the shooter. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, to right. right. So like, um, yeah, you get this like far right presence uh, that's like on the front lines of like the fighting, and you know they're not they're not representing a large amount of Ukrainian society, but they articulate some. You know, they know how to articulate nationalist ideas that uh do kind of appeal in a populist way to a lot of ukrainians uh and they're very well organized on the street in in the way that um like the classic fascist parties were like they have gyms they have social clubs they do like you know they do they have these like they promote like straight edge fitness shit um you know which only confirms my suspicions that straight edge people are nazis yeah um, ian mckay were, were... <laughs> Yeah. we're looking at you but yeah so they end up having influence in like the post maidan uh, era and uh, i think a couple of the um the nationalist parties get like some seats in parliament and a couple of cabinet posts uh that lasts oh. for a few years then in the next elections they actually don't they lose all their cabinet posts but, but they, they do get integrated into the ukrainian national guard which is why that's a problem like a, a a state capacity problem they didn't have enough troops right. so they decided to let the neo-nazis in what happened there 
Yeah, well, because what happens after the Maidan, right? There's this moment of euphoria, like, oh my God, a, pop a successful popular uprising, like the people standing up for democracy, we drove out the corrupt Russian leader and we're gonna, you know, like be a real uh, democratic Western power. But what's coming out of Russia? Uh, this whole time, like, and it's really hard to convey to Westerners because who just like follow, they read like English language, like, you know, RT and like anti-imperialist news, right? So they're getting like the sanitized version of like, the, oh, NATO, CIA, like that kind of stuff, right? What Russia is saying to its own people, like the actual Russian language media is like, imagine like Fox, imagine if Fox News was a whole country um, and then like multiply it by 10. Uh, NATO is like barely even mentioned until uh, maybe until like the very end of the protests when the worst of the violence starts. And that's when, of course, you know, because America has to stick his nose into everything. It was pretty much ignoring this stuff. And then, you know, of course, the American diplomats show up and yeah. make speeches. Right. Uh, and that okay. gets taken as proof as, oh, America planned this all along. But for most of the protests, the message that Russia was like sending against the Maidan was that this is all an EU plot to turn your children gay uh, and to make your children question their gender. And look at this like Swedish television program where uh, they talk about sex or something. That's what that's what the gay ropa, the gay ropa, that's a term that they use a lot. Oh, that's wow. what gay ropa wants for your children. Global homo, very, as they would say in the West. <laughs> yeah, there's a famous like there, there was a big poster that went around. It was like this like really over the top thing where it's like. The, uh, a Ukrainian is like facing uh, this like trip, this like, uh, you know, scene of like two different, uh, two different worlds. And on the left is like this degenerate like EU with like uh, people doing both like people doing Nazi salutes and um, like gay people making out under pride flags and like cocaine and all that. Which, like, you know, apart from that's Nazis, a lot of stuff. Yeah, except for the Nazi stuff. So. Yeah. And, and on like... the right is like, you know, Soviet tanks and like Orthodox churches and this like wholesome uh, peasant family with like six children. And it's like, you know, this is your, this is like the choice that you Which, bring. which way, Ukrainian I mean, man? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's about as coherent as, you know, the fucking right wingers in the United States today who think their enemies are like liberals. Islamic Sharia law and right. gays and communists too. Exactly, Most yeah. people are all communists too. Yeah. I mean, right. that so, goes without saying. So to me, it's just like, you know, as someone who, who actually like was in that media space and like saw it, it's baffling to me that like, you know, like that poster, right. That the left quote unquote would look at it and be like, yeah, the right side. That's good. That's the, that's, those are our guys. That's, that's the ones we want. The like trad church, like uh, family values people. So basically, there's fash on both sides, and they cancel each other yeah. out. And only not really. So, uh, right. So what what's, what Russia started doing besides that was not only did they seize Crimea, they sent um, they tried to rile up like local uh, anti Maidan kind of like uh, you know like the Tea Party protests that were mostly like astroturf. It was mostly like dour looking pensioners like that were obviously busted like standing there with signs. Uh, that didn't really take off even in like the pro-Russian areas where honestly, if I had to like, if I had to spitball like numbers, it was like, yeah, maybe you had like 15% like hardcore pro-Russian people who were like, you know, thought that Russians were oppressed in Ukraine, which I'll talk about a bit more later. Um, and then you have like, you have maybe like, actually like you did have people speaking Ukrainian who were like pro-Ukrainian and pro-Western in those regions too. And then the vast majority of people who like, you know, just want to be left alone. Just like, it's like anywhere, like, yeah, exactly. the, like 60, 70% of people in America are like, I don't care. Leave me alone. It's the same, yeah. like in most places. So when they failed to like, 
drum up this like local protest they just send in like you know russians pretending to be ukrainians and like people like volunteers quote unquote and they basically like you know formed these militias and proclaimed uh, autonomous republics there so the donetsk and the luhansk like people's republics right and you see like communist takes from like and i'm not now i'm not just talking about people on twitter i'm talking about like fucking caleb maupin i'm talking about yeah. boris kagarlitsky who was actually like a pretty good uh russian communist theorist but people actually claiming that those are real like you know people's republics that should be taken seriously and i mean all it takes is and again yeah the uh, anti-imperialists love to I, I swear like the azov battalion in the west that like want that nazi battalion that is integrated into ukrainian national guard uh got to be like the most covered uh single like you know battalion in history at this point yeah like, photos that people but for some reason you never see uh, what you never see is the photos of like who are these Donetsk and Luhansk people's republics, right? Who is Igor Strelkov? Yeah, well, let's take a look. We've got, um, yeah, let me pull this up here. Uh, we've got the Russian Orthodox Army. We've got uh, Igor Strelkov, a uh, a guy who um, cosplays, uh, who does like historical reenactment cosplay and is a self-professed monarchist who also committed war crimes in Bosnia. Um, Among other places, also allegedly in, in Chechnya. He became the defense minister for one of these independent popular states, I believe. Right, exactly. Um, we've got like multiple battalions who have just as much uh, as many Nazi insignias, uh, Volksangles, uh, whatever, like other obscure shit. And for some reason, no one, no one wants to like, no one sees that, right? Um, it's, it's, it's just like, oh, it's the Ukrainian Nazis and the Russians are just this like amorphous, either benign or uh, like at least neutral force. But no, these guys, uh, these guys on the Russian side are largely, um, they are largely driven by the ideology of the white guards and uh, the black hundreds. Which, so like straight up proto-fascism out of the uh, Russian Civil War, like straight yeah. up the enemies of humanity in the right. 19th like, uh, like Russian or the enemies of communism. Oh. Enemies of Jews, mostly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like if you look at who committed like the most pogroms during like that times, like, I mean, all sides kind of had blood on their hands. Uh, but I mean, the ones who actually like actively encouraged pogroms against the Jews. I mean, it was it was Trotsky who said that if the white Russians had won, you would have seen like Hitlerism 20 years uh, before the letter. So these are the these are the kinds of people that, um, you know, form like really the fighting core of uh, these like separatist republics. Mm. And so for and, you know, but like one thing that Russia is good at, Russia doesn't care about uh, Russia isn't as good as at, at soft power as the U.S., right? It doesn't have like the advanced sort of like um, media operation where you can kind of like you don't even have to really lie. You can just kind of emphasize emphasize different things, and you can kind of uh, you know obscure some facts. But um, Russia will straight up lie. Like they'll just do that, uh, and they'll do it kind of with a smirk on their face, and they will literally say uh, while having these like fucking black hundreds and white guard battalions. Uh, they'll literally say that uh, Ukraine uh, is taken over by Nazis, even after they literally elect the Jewish president, and that uh, we, uh, Russia, historical defender of Jews and minorities, uh, have to come in and liberate them. Yeah, speaking of the lies, uh, I also wanted to ask you about um, these pro-Russian paramilitaries 
and leading to the actual Russian army getting involved in these disputed territories of Ukraine, which Russia denied ever sending. What's what's up with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, they established these like separatist republics. Um, the Ukrainian army tried to take them back. Uh, and, you know, like Human Rights Watch has like said that there was uh, there were war crime violations on both sides because largely because the Ukrainian army was like a disorganized force of also like militias, some of which were far right militias like Azov. Um, and, you know, they're trying to take back this territory and there's shelling going back and forth. And there's like, uh, you know, there's clashes between in cities like in Odessa, there was a clash between like pro-Russian and pro-Ukrainian football hooligans that ended up with uh, the pro-Russian ones getting chased into a building. And then someone threw a Molotov cocktail and, and they burned in the building, Fucking which of course sports. Russia fucking loved that. It's like, oh, they're literally committing a genocide against, um, against Russians. But uh, honestly, in terms of, you know, from all the reports I've seen and people I've talked to there, and by the way, I've, I, I'm not just like some dude who came here when I was seven and then I've never been back since and I'm using it. Uh, I, I spent uh, quite a bit of time back. Uh, I was back there in 2013, um, went all over the country, I made a lot of friends in like Kiev and Viv and, and in my hometown. Uh, I came back in 2015, 2016. So, and you know, um, I know quite a few like people in journalism and academia uh, who are who were either living there at the time or are currently there. Um, and you know, the there was I have yet to see a single report of like a non-combat area uh, pro-Russian or Russian-speaking civilians being like oppressed, let alone genocided. Um, meanwhile, in these separatist republics, which effectively came under like warlord rule. Uh, you know, like stuff still functioned. People just went about their lives, but like people got kidnapped, people got beaten, people got disappeared if they were suspected of being like pro-Ukrainian or if they, you know, if they had a Ukrainian flag on them or something like that. Um, you know, it happened famously to Simon Ostrovsky, uh, who was doing reporting from there for Vice. Uh, he got like uh, beaten in a basement for about a week uh, until they let him go. Um, and, you know, yeah, like show me one thing like that happening. In, you know, my friend Anton, you you guys might have met him. Uh, oh, yeah. He's from, he's from, uh, he's from Lviv all the way in the West. Uh, his grandparents are like literally pro-Putin Russian, uh, pro-Russian Putinists um, who live in Lviv, but in this like super pro-Ukrainian city. Um, and like, as far as I know, they're still there. They're fine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this idea that then this idea comes that uh, Ukraine is committing genocide against Russian speakers. And I mean, again, it's like shameless. They're using like videos from like Sarajevo mm. and saying that which, you know, by the way, Russia supported. Um, but uh, yeah, and like, so I think that even like leftists who aren't tankies, who aren't like, you know, brain poisoned, they hear all that stuff. And the kind of like natural thing is like, well, like I know Russia's probably exaggerating a lot, but there's gotta be like some kernel of truth to this, right? And it's hard to imagine that they're just like, it's literally just like fucking made up out of whole cloth. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the role played by Russian propaganda and disinformation in causing this conflict. Um, yeah, I mean, it's that that was initially what made it because, you know, when Maidan was happening, uh, a lot of people in the East mostly watch Russian television and Russian television was telling them that like, oh, these are all these people you see like in the streets. They're all Nazis and they're going to come to kill you and genocide you for speaking Russian. Um, and, you know, if you're like, Again, we, we know some of that here, right? If you're kind of a boomer, a person of a certain age who like, you know, you're in, who is uncomfortable with the world changing around you and, you know, the... And also for whom the world changed radically for you. Exactly. you know, maybe the first 20, 30 years of your life, you were um, 
told that you were building, you know, uh, the proletarian state and you were trying to bring justice and development and freedom uh, to the world. And then all of a sudden the, the world crumbled around you. You know, what do you have to believe in anymore except maybe that? And then, you know, you're also old and a boomer. So you're scared of everything all the time. It makes right. sense. Right. And then, and which is why, you know, the, the sort of language politics, right? Like this idea that, uh, oh, after independence, like Ukraine tried to like, uh, oppress Russian speakers and wipe out the Russian language. Like, as far as I can tell, no, it, it's like, you know, they tried to reverse the default Soviet policy where Russian was the privileged language and like no one even really had to learn. Like, you know, I, I spent seven years of my life in Ukraine, didn't, they didn't remember a word of Ukrainian, right? Um, so, and you know, the, this idea that like, okay, yeah, they required all, all official stuff to be in Ukrainian, which didn't stop them from also providing it in Russian, but it just, it had to be in Ukrainian. Right. And that is the kind of thing that like they called uh, oppression. And it really like it's really funny that so many leftists like jump onto this when it's really like the same impulse as like, you know, American boomers like getting mad at seeing Spanish language. <laughs> yeah. Press yeah. one for English. Like, like God damn it. We speak Russian here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. The fucking like like Zoomer kids on fucking Twitter and Facebook have turned into Russian boomers. Their brains have turned into fucking oh my god, yeah. total mush. Oh no. Um, so you know, no I mean, political it, Russian boomerism. And you know, yeah, I don't want to minimize that. Like you know, in the battles to like take back that territory, which eventually, after they realized that Russia was just going to keep sending more like weapons and troops across the border, they kind of pulled back. But yeah, in those battles, like you know, civilian areas were shelled, um, like on both sides, and like and the Donetsk People's Republic, uh, as I understand it, you know, from some of these sources that you send me, and I, I'll, I'll admit that I didn't go too deeply into it before this episode, because there's always a lot to read about, right? But like, it was a plaything of like various um, Ukrainian Russian speaking billionaires, like, mm -hmm. like mining magnates, who basically helped to create these quote unquote movements out of whole cloth in some cases they got away from them right but they was this is literally like capitalist warlordism that you're talking about and then i suppose just like the 1930s or 20s you slap socialists or peoples onto it and right. it's supposed to have some imprimatur or it's supposed to i suppose for like the boomer post-soviets it's supposed to be reminiscent of some vision of freedom that they had when they were younger or something yeah. but but then to get to get to, to get caught up in that in the west you know, believe that this is like a, a people's liberation, just oof. right. Um, yeah. yeah, especially since all you have to do is you, you can look at their constitutions and it's like, you know, it, it, it enshrines like Russian orthodoxy as like the state religion, <laughs> and, like, prohibits, like uh, prohibits like gay propaganda and all, all that stuff, and nothing really about abolishing private property, but um, yeah, yeah. I, wa I wanted to ask how Putin is managing to channel this sort of nostalgia for the Soviet Union on the one hand, you know, specifically the power that it had in the region, uh, while completely disavowing all of like any aspect of socialism or even social democracy. Like, how is he managing to do that dance and selling it to people? No, that's a great question. I mean, for, I think really the first person to kind of start that path was Stalin. Like he was the one who kind of, uh, and it was partly because of the war effort, but he, ironically, because he himself was Georgian, uh, but he started rehabilitating the Russian Orthodox Church uh, after, you know, it had been like heavily suppressed during Lenin, um, rehabilitating the Russian Orthodox Church and, you know, Russian nationalism or uh, great Russian uh, 
like pride in Russia's history as a great power um, as part of like the war morale effort. Uh, and then, you know, of course you get this, uh, like Russia's the like defining national identity is its victory in the great patriotic war, right? Which is what they call World War II. Um, and which is like, you know, obviously was huge and without Russia it would have been lost. But Russia just kind of like ironically how Ukraine turned uh, the Holodomor into like this like cornerstone of national identity, like we lost so much, uh, this like national trauma thing. Like, like I mean, Russia had like millions and millions of, uh, of casualties, like more than any other country in World War II. Uh, but it turned it into this like kind of like chauvinistic like, point of pride where and the, 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 the thing is like the great victory over fascism uh, that they call like it very quickly becomes clear that like the problem they have with fascism or Nazism is that it attacked Russia. Mm. Uh, not that it was like, you know, autocratic or repressive or that it targeted Jews and minorities, um, you know, at this point, like that's all fine. Just, you know. Just don't attack Russia. So, so when Russia says fascism or Nazism, you have to understand that that to them is just a synonym for anything that is against Russia. Mm. Yeah, they're not being woke. Right. Yeah, because which is that, that's the that's the mistake that all these like Zoomers make, right? They're like, oh, like we hate Nazis, we want to punch Nazis. Russia says they want to punch Nazis. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, it's sort of like we we were talking about the the trucker convoy stuff last week, and we've been discussing the sort of rise of the the far right and there's this really big question about what is fascism and people want to try to like um say directly that donald trump and the MAGA movement is like a straight up fascist movement just like the 1930s or whatever well my position on this has always been that like something obviously doesn't have to be uh flying a swastika or look exactly like the 1920s in italy or the 1930s in germany to be a sort of like revolutionary reactionary sort of ideology in fact each nation you know the, you can you can get like very far down the road towards 1930s germany just using the american flag using the maple leaf and you can certainly get pretty far into um you know nazi territory apparently just by flying a uh, russian flag too because each of these older you know like capitalist nations or or nations that uh, you know have these sort of 19th and 20th century traditions all have their far-right reactionary movements within them and they take these obviously different historical forms based on the culture and the history of that place right but uh of course like reactionary politics comes out of this sort of the, the contradictions of class society and the way that the nation state becomes this sort of central focus of social life, this sort of advanced form of organizing society. And so Russian fascism doesn't fly a swastika. You know, it doesn't have to. It doesn't even have to be fascism to be bad. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't have to read between the lines to find it, right? Like Putin's statement on the invasion was extremely uh, shall we say blood and soily? Dude, motherfucker, the, there was one source that you sent that like like Putin's direct quote to uh, to Zelensky right before he invaded to the Russian speaking media was basically like a sort of taunt in Russia that said, whether you like it or not, we're going to rape you. Like that's what he was saying to the Russian language media, like to Zelensky. And, and you know, we, we didn't get any of that over here. That's yeah, not, not very well. It's a uh, uh, or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it is one of these like ribald old Russian sayings that uh, you know is not woke. Um, but yeah, I imagine I mean, none of them are. Right. 
But yeah, yeah, let's talk about Zelensky because um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about him. Like so, yeah, most of what I know about him is he's like an actor who got elected president as some sort of you know liberal reformer, anti-corruption candidate, and now he's acting objectively <laughs> heroically. I think in refusing to be evacuated by the U.S. and He's also they, become a bit of an action there. figure and also a oh, God, symbol, yeah, the, apparently, for oh, the God, libs. The Marvel, the Marvel liberals are the, having a field day with this. They're uh, repeating that, like, my legs are cramping thing like they did. For, no. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's, yeah, it's, it's not cool. I mean, at least he's, like, kind of a chad. Like, I mean, would, I, Beto, I, would Beto go down with the ship? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I think he is, but it's also, like, I think it's kind of, like, not really relevant, right? Like, it's... I mean, yeah, like, for, and, but I mean, you know, personally, like, I mean, it is like a little bit like as a Russian speaking Jew, which he also is. And, and like the fact that you see this like dorky Jewish comedian who still kind of struggles to speak Ukrainian um, and that he ended up in this situation that I'm pretty sure he didn't expect to be like, you know, garroted by Chechen special forces or waiting to be Jeez. right. But the fact that they're going to do that to like the only Jewish head of state outside of Israel, and then they're going to like smirk at the camera and say that they're doing denazification. Uh, and that like, we have people in our whatever who are like cheering that on. Like, yeah, that, like that just fucking does something to me. That That's, that's like, yeah. If you were um, like sidebarring a little bit from the historic and the political stuff, maybe we're getting towards the territory of like how to communists if in any way at all uh, how do we orient towards this i mean given the choice and you don't have to answer this like if you were in ukraine now if you were in your family's town like would you consider taking up arms like so many other people have yeah that's a rough one i mean yeah. i i i sent you guys that piece that i thought was really good it was like confessions from ukrainian marxists and i mean yeah. uh, you know there's the thing is, like, this often, again, I mean, and we do have to get to this point eventually, right? Like, how does this meet with praxis and with theory? Um, and I think the first thing to, like, consider is just, like, yeah, like, know the situation on the ground and kind of, like, like you, you should have an understanding of, like, the basic principles that your, like, leftism is even founded on to begin with. Because if you're just doing this like an equation, like, well, uh, NATO is on this side. And so I have to be like, 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 why? What is the point? Why are you, why did you become a leftist in the first place? Right? Like, what was it just like, and I think for a lot of these people, it's just this like really juvenile resentment of like, you know, that you read Chomsky in like high school or something. You're like, oh my God, mom and dad lied to me. Uh, now I'm going to prove how much I hate them at every opportunity. Um, well, okay. To be fair, I think where a lot of these people are coming from, at least you know, like the, the less bad examples yeah. of them uh, is a fundamental orientation of their politics as uh, the U.S. being the primary culprit in global capitalism. So you have to oppose the, U the U.S. at all costs, even if the thing opposing it is also capitalist. Right. Like, let's take let's take China off the table. Let's take Venezuela off the table. Any example of like, quote unquote, actually existing socialism. OK, like just looking at Putin or like, you know, other situations where they wound up supporting the other guy and the other guy wasn't a socialist. Like, I think that's where they're coming from. Yeah. Um, right. And, you know, then you get this like as opposed to like we need a global proletarian revolution right. that defies nations and borders. Yeah, and I mean I think that's uh, yeah, you get this like half-baked uh, multipolarity thesis, right? Uh -huh. And it's like 
they they assert with like very little evidence, right? Because you're just talking about again, you're gaming this out like a, like it's a Europa Universalis game, like hoy <laughs> uh, four really, but yes, <laughs> uh, like that, like oh, a multipolar world with multiple uh, you know centers of capital uh, competing against each other is somehow going to be more fertile ground for socialism, and um, I just don't know where that comes from because first of all, we had multipolar worlds before. Uh, it's not like, oh, this idea of like, oh, everyone has their sphere of influence and then they stay within it, right? As if we didn't have a war every two decades to like right. align a little bit further in one direction or another. Uh, As though World War I wasn't the explosion of that concept. Exactly, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, it's it's that same kind of like, oh, we, we need to go back uh, that like you see with the people who think we can just go back to like 1950s social democracy, right? right. Like, why did it end? What happened? Um, <laughs> And then, you know, right. The, the other, other thing is like we don't we have no idea how a multipolar world would work with a nuclear in a nuclear world. Uh doesn't seem too great, actually. Um, and you know, not that I'm gonna like looking like say we must preserve US hegemony, but it, it just I don't I don't think communists have like actually a side there uh, either. Uh, right. that that I think is is the main point is that uh the, you you don't have to choose a side. Like I'm my thesis for years now on this podcast. How many years have we been doing this shit? Four or five years at this point? Four. Yeah, I think four years or so. Um just looking at like the history and the political economy something like a multipolar world is coming whether we like it or not just because of the decline of american hegemony our political and obviously our economic centrality or whatever but that doesn't mean that what comes after that or the other poles that arise are necessary liberatory necessarily liberatory ones and they only are really if again you have this sort of anti-imperialism of fools which is to say that imperialism is when america does stuff like I can sit here as an American and I think Chomsky is actually right about this. I've always th thought that Chomsky was right about when you when it comes to like taking a stand on anything foreign policy related that happens, you start with the country that you have the most influence over, which, of course, is your own. So you, of course, always stand up and critique your country. You see you critique their imperialism when they try to invade Iraq. Who's in a better position to do anything about that but an American citizen to stand up and do right. it? Yeah. But I at mean, the same the, time, degree, you, you have to end there, right? But you don't have to end our, there. Exactly. Over our own country. Yeah, you don't have to end there, right? So it does not follow then that Saddam Hussein is worthy of, of backing yeah. that Muammar Gaddafi or that Assad is then becomes a force for liberation. But it is like it is the politics of failure, it is the politics of defeat, it is the it is the politics of saying like the the drive for human liberation um can be seen in um in a in a political chess match it can be painted on the map like in hoi Four. Yeah, we just have to like we humans have no longer people no longer have agency to like do popular uprisings or revolutions all we're reduced to is like spectators like cheering for one exactly hundred percent well, I mean, that is depoliticization yes right? like this is this concept we like to talk about uh aside hater wrote a good article on it in viewpoint mag that i feel like i reference a lot uh like the feeling that a different world is not possible and you know i feel like i'm not immune to it i feel like a crazy person sometimes saying that you know we got to fight for communism because like how how the fuck do we do that in our current scenario yeah i mean you know if we knew we'd be doing it but like i at least have a pretty good idea how we don't do it uh and it's by <laughs> 
you know, rooting for like Russian Orthodox imperialism. <laughs> um, but and through some like convoluted, oh, like, uh, you know, the like, you know, the underpants gnomes from South Park, like step one, <laughs> step two, step three, question mark. Yeah. <laughs> Profit. I mean, look, our our vision, I mean, I guess we don't all have this. I can't speak for everyone at the Antifada, but sort of the more like uh, internationalist, global proletarian insurrection or even getting into some like communization theory insurrectionary anarchism or like you know some people like to make fun of communization as like spontaneous urban Pol Pot or whatever like uh, I admit that that is probably uh, it, it may or may not be possible but I don't think it's any more far-fetched than the sort of uh, statist yeah. to socialism or, or- which yeah. has been tried more. Exactly. So by the process of elimination, I'm like, maybe this other thing might work at some point in the future. Yeah, or, or the idea that uh, that Putin's great Russian chauvinism is going to somehow bring us closer to yeah. socialism or communism. I mean, yeah, we weren't even we're not even talking about socialism when we're talking about uh, things have just. We live in hell, man. We're not even we're literally not talking about state socialism. We're not talking about the USSR. And that didn't work. So why does anyone think that this will? Right. Um, Yeah. And and so, so, yeah, I think this really like kind of ties it all together because it's like, what can we do? And like, again, the first thing we should be doing is trying to build solidarity, not just, you know, uh, for a national electoral office, which I think is also actually a lot, ironically, like Tankies think of themselves as like the radical far left, uh, you know, against the liberals. But a lot of this comes out of uh, the idea they're like oriented nationally, electorally. And then there's this idea of like, well, we can influence U.S. foreign policy because look, we're going to get uh, AOC and uh, the other people elected, and if we can just manage <laughs> to make them take an anti-imperialist line, <laughs> right. U.S. imperialism to force the vote or whatever, yeah. right? And um, and then you know they yeah they use this like sort of uh, logic of like uh, this this like Chomsky idea is like well it's my job to criticize my own country and not criticize other countries, which you know again Chomsky never said that second part. Uh, B we we live in a globalized world you're on twitter there are people from other countries on there so it's 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 this weirdly like american centric chauvinistic where you just i've seen people say in groups where there's people from all over the world like well as americans it's our responsibility to <laughs> <laughs> um, Motherfucker. Yeah, if, if you take it to this dumb like chauvinistic extent then okay so what are you going to do when you encounter like uh, a russian anti-war leftist uh, who's criticizing Putin on Twitter, you're going to call him a CIA stooge. And uh, right, that's what people end up doing. That's the only way you can cognitive dissonance your way out of it. And I'm really glad that, you know, we all had the opportunity to read the uh, the ill will piece by anonymous about Kazakhstan and the and the cycle of struggles. And I think honestly, and we'll, we could put the link to that in, in the show notes or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know if I consider myself an anarchist or a communist, but I feel like at least anarchists, and it's certainly in this instance, understand the role of class struggle still, or at least the, the, the understanding of insurrection yeah, that, that surpasses this geopolitical cul-de-sac that every motherfucker has painted themselves into right now. Yeah, I yeah. mean, in, they're in, talking in about revolutionary strategy and they're taking it seriously. And so does, by the way, that controversial crime thing article that yeah. I will also post a link to because I thought it was very informative. Yeah, I just mean like, and in, in beyond like class struggle, it's like class analysis. Like if you can't have basic solidarity with like people who are being like shelled by tanks um, for just like, like for what? 
um then like why why the fuck are you a leftist like just you know be, be like some kind of other weird you know yeah. hyphenated, uh orthodox dugano uh, <laughs> you know islamo uh whatever like syndicalist or get, whatever get, get a job at uh caleb malkin's uh center for political innovation get yeah. a nice paycheck from russia today and uh just live off that grift bro no no offense to any of our friends who might work for russia today you know (laughs) a man's gotta eat um but okay just to play i don't want to say devil's advocate because they're certainly in the mix um what role does nato play in all of this i would like to get your take on it uh yeah i mean i think uh there was a good like you know as far as realist foreign policy goes uh was stephen Walt, i think had a good um piece on this where and, you know th- those people are obviously not uh neither communists nor like weird putin apologists they're like veterans of the u.s foreign policy establishment but uh i mean they're kind of right which is that uh in the 90s when Russia, when the Soviet Union fell apart and Russia was, um, you know, trying to go down this capitalist democratic path, which ended up being like a disaster for them economically, um, just uh, instead of disbanding NATO or instead of trying to like pull Russia into it. And, you know, there's there's lots of complex, probably like, you know, um, economic analysis reasons why that didn't happen. But uh yeah, instead of like either disbanding NATO or trying to get Russia to join NATO, which it actually asked you a couple of times, both under Yeltsin and Putin, uh, NATO kind of just did this like victory lap and uh, expanded to the east. And, you know, I mean, to be fair, Russia's like fears about being uh, encircled by NATO. It's part of it. it part of it is kind of like, dude, what NATO is planning to like invade Russia, really? Like you, you do have to be a little bit like conspiracists to believe that. But it's not even about that, right? Because there is just like the logic of states takes on its own life, whether or not uh, the states have friendly relations or not, which is why, you know, at in the run-up to World War One, when uh, the monarchs of like Germany, England, and Russia were all cousins and taking ski vacations together, their generals were already like planning out complex war strategies for fighting each other. Because right. this is how the logic of straight states kind of works. So it, it's kind of like, yeah, Russia under any ruler would have protested and been threatened by NATO expansion. The other side of that is like NATO really had no reason not to expand, right? Because again, like this is what states or state-like formations do and it's also like a uh, an american hegemony that's being protected as well and not just american but also like hegemony means pulling other capitalist yeah. states into this yeah. into this grander orbit guys i'm gonna i you, i encourage you guys to do a bonus but I, i'm gonna have to run in a little bit i just wanted to say like like real fast maybe some some concluding points on the main app are you guys down for that yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say this, like, um, I don't know, a new IPCC report came out today also about climate change, really fucking dire, Um, on top of like this expansionism on the part of capitalist states, on top of, um, you know, American power and, and this all the all the chaos, but also the stability that came from, you know, 70 years of dominance uh, starting to decline, too. Uh, we're also in a situation where, you know, this big, this big, like uh, bourgeois ideologues and uh, economists used to laugh at this idea of the decline of the rate of profit or whatever. Well, guess what? We're now at a different sort of end of history 
where capital is actually becoming a barrier to its own self-expansion. Like we see everywhere, whether you're in Putin's Russia, whether you're in Zelensky's Ukraine, whether you're in Berlin, Paris, uh, Washington, D.C., New York City, hell, even if you're in fucking um, uh, in China right now, a city in China right now, the capitalist system is more and more running out of steam. Uh, no longer has the ability to accumulate in the ways that it has in the past and create the kind of growth and jobs necessary for human flourishing. We've reached this all these sorts of barriers right now. And so I think maybe the largest, largest context of what we see right here is that as now, as the rate of profit is at a point where all sorts of countries, all sorts of places all over the earth are in crisis, uh, now becomes it becomes more and more important than ever for all of us to not see the struggle for human freedom as a national or even as a geopolitical fight and struggle, but instead to understand that the power has to be in all of our hands as working class people, because the Putins of the world are always going to run over, you know, the, the Ukrainian people who are merely, honestly, the, the working class of Ukraine are bystanders in a much larger historical process and a much larger sort of competition between capitalist states. What they desire is to be left alone, but what they desire really like in the long run is what every human being desires, which is have the stability and the, and the prosperity and the enjoyment of life to have, enjoy their family and their friends and just go on and live their lives or whatever. Capitalist politics and capitalist state politics and capitalism itself is making that impossible, not just for Ukrainians, especially in this moment for Ukrainians, but for all of us ultimately. So the future for all of us listening to this or speaking right now, our future is the future of is what the Ukrainians are going through right now. If we don't put a fucking stop to this, if we do not end this system of imperialism and oppression and capitalist exploitation and domination, we will all end up one day facing what the Ukrainian working class is facing right now, which is getting stomped and crushed and rolled over by some set of capitalist forces who are trying to, to just squeeze the last blood from the stone of capital accumulation as this entire fucking world goes down in flames. So we should not be thinking geopolitically about this. We should be thinking communistically about this and understanding ourselves as the only possible potential actors to get out of this fucking mess. Try to unite with people all over the world and try to ultimately, of course, to overthrow Putin first, Biden second, and Zelensky third, okay? And make communism. That's, that's, that's my rant. Dead ass. Uh, yeah. Um, I guess, could I just say some like final things about like just the current situation? Just like, that's please. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry for please being do. weird. And no, that was a very good trademark Sean rant. Oh, and um, yeah, like I myself am a little bit sick of seeing uh the, the, the framework that we're all using right now of like it's the working class internationally against the capitalist class is being painted as some sort of like simplistic anarchist uh, idealism when that like read fucking Marx that is the core of communism too and right. like we and, agree and, on yeah, more yeah. we need to like the keats none of this gets done without building solidarity internationally and so it's just like the thing to do is like this stuff that people are seeing from Ukraine, like you see this, like if you don't know any like people from that part of the world, like, you know, I, I get it, but like, we're here, we're, we're around, we're on the left. Like there's stuff written by us. You can, you can go out of your way to read it before like issuing these like blistering takes 
And I'm not like saying uh, this isn't like an appeal for civility or being, being more sensitive, but it's just like, dude, like you can criticize NATO. Like I know and I am not, I'm certainly not advocating NATO intervention. I don't want the fucking world to end, but like you can do that without like shitting on an entire country of people that's literally just getting invaded and like having a civilian building shelled for like, for nothing, for like daring to like have a popular protest seven years ago at this point. Um, and you can you can do that without like posting memes like well you all ukrainians are nazis like how are you ever gonna get international support if this is your attitude towards like people in other countries who like dare to try to do something to better their lives um you know and without necessarily following the like correct communist line that you've gotten from some like footnote of uh whatever uh yeah it's just like man like if you don't have like basic human decency and like sympathy for the masses um whatever country they're in then like what are you even doing here i mean anytime even even if they're wrong even if they by which i mean even if they disagree with me of course uh anytime you see regular people uh taking up arms protesting in the streets uh just like doing insane acts against uh, crazy odds. Uh, I want to understand why they're doing that, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, you know, I can, we can reserve judgment. Like, I feel like a lot of this discourse has been about assigning blame to one party or another mm -hmm. and not enough about like this wide angle analysis of how this developed um, because we're materialists here, you know? Like, obviously there's always going to be contingencies. There's always going to be personalities that arise to take advantage of uh, certain currents in the world, but we got to be able to look at things from a wide angle historical materialist lens. Otherwise, like, I don't know, I know what we're doing here. So like, what do we do though? I like to end on a call to action of some sort. Is there anything that US leftists should be doing who are concerned about this and want to help in some way. Um, yeah, so there's a number of like, you, you probably, at this point it's like flooded. There's a lot of uh, different like charity donation links going around. Um, definitely, I would say, like if you can donate to the ones that are, especially, especially the ones that are trying to help refugees. Um, don't crowdfund a paramilitary group. Yeah, don't I'm do that. Say. Don't, don't, like <laughs> avoid the ones, especially because one of the, uh, at least one of the ones that's like specifically military oriented does have like ties to the far right. But again, there's plenty of ones that don't that are just like doing medical supplies. There's always the Red Cross. Um, and uh, there's actually, uh, there's an anarchist um, collective in Ukraine that's also um, trying to trying to fundraise. Let me just, uh, let me pull it up uh, really quick. Should, should we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we can put it in the show notes. Um, Email it to us. Definitely. Um, yeah. So, and other than that, you know, just like if you're in, if you're in Europe, uh, see if you can get in touch with, uh, one of the orgs that's like helping, uh, process and settle refugees. Um, and yeah, that's really like, honestly, all we can do, all we can do is have solidarity. Um, like we are not the chess players. We are not controlling the geopolitical chessboard. Uh, and, you know, we're honestly, we're probably years away from doing that. But the first step to doing that is building solidarity on the ground with people. Oh, yeah. Uh, or, yeah. 
Alex, thank you so much, man. This has been a real pleasure. Nice to actually speak with somebody who has some real connection to this and obviously has people he cares about on the ground and experience. So thank you so much for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is great. Right, thanks. You know, he stood so straight and tall in his uniform and all. His mother's face broke out all in a grin. Oh, son, you look so fine. I'm glad you're a son of mine. You make me proud to know you hold a gun. Do what the captain says. Lots of medals you will get. And we'll put them on the wall when you come home. When that old train pulled out, John's mob began to shout. Telling everyone in the neighborhood. That's my son that's about to go. He's a soldier now, you know. She made well sure her neighbors understood. She got a letter once in a while, and her face broke into a smile as she showed him from to the people from next door. And she bragged out her son with his uniform and gun in this thing she called a good old-fashioned war. Lord, Lord, good old-fashioned war. ceased to come for a long time they did not come they ceased to come for about nine months or more then the letter finally came saying go down and meet the train your son to come in home from the war she smiled and went right down she looked up and all around but she did not see her soldier son in sight but as all the people passed she saw her son at last when she did she could hardly believe her eyes his face was all shot up, and his hands were both blown off, and he wore a middle brace around his waist. He whispered kind of slow in a voice she did not know, while she could not even recognize his face. Oh, tell me, my darling son, pray tell me what they've done. How is it that you've come to be this way? He tried his best to talk as his mouth could hardly move, and his mother had to turn her head away. Don't you remember, Ma, when I went off to war? You thought it was the best thing I could do. I was on the battleground. You were home acting proud. We thank God you wasn't standing in my shoes. Lord, I thought when I was there, God, what am I doing here? I'm trying to kill somebody or die trying. But the thing that scared the most is when my enemy came close and I saw that his face looked just like mine. Lord, Lord, just like mine. And through and I could not help but think through the thunder rolling stink that I was just a puppet in a play and through the roaring smoke the string had finally broke and a cannonball it blew my eyes away as he turned away to walk his ma was still in shock seeing the metal brace that helped him stand but as he turned to go he called his mother close, and he dropped his medals down into her hand. Lord, Lord, down to her hand.